0: Hello everyone, like that double take there. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman and you've tuned into Rediscovering New York. Professionally, I'm a real estate broker with Halstead Real Estate and I love New York. Rediscovering New York is a weekly program about the history, texture, and current vibe of our amazing city. On most shows, like tonight's, we focus on an individual New York neighborhood, exploring its history and its current energy. What makes that particular New York neighborhood special? And we do it through interviews with historians, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, preservationists, local musicians and artists, and the occasional elected official. Sometimes we host a show about an interesting and vital color of the city that's not focused on one particular neighborhood. In the past, you've heard episodes of the history of presidents who came from or who lived in New York, the history of the women's suffrage movement, the history of the city's LGBT community and the gay rights movement. We've explored the history of bicycles and cycling, and we've covered the history of punk and opera in New York. In the future, we'll journey to some of the city's parks, the subway, some of our grander train stations, that's on our show next week, or the city in the age of a specific social or political movement. By the way, the shows I mentioned that we've had in the past are available on podcast, on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other services. Other services. Today, we're going to visit two neighborhoods which have a lot in common. They're side by side, and they're very closely aligned in more ways than one, Flatiron and Nomad, and also the park that adjoins them together, Madison Square Park. Our first guest is our special consultant and regular, David Griffin. David's with Landmark Branding. He's a lifelong architectural enthusiast providing creative sales-enhancing services for the national real estate community. David is the founder and CEO of Landmark Branding. His clients include architects and design firms in addition to developers, brokers, and marketing companies. His Room at the Top series, which yours truly has been lucky enough to go to, is co-hosted with Jennifer Wallace of Nascent Art New York. It's the only ongoing networking series in real estate to feature tours of Manhattan's greatest buildings. His latest blog, Every Building on 5th, documents every single building on 5th Avenue, every single building on 5th Avenue from Washington Square Park up to where 5th Avenue ends at the Harlem River. His writing has appeared in Real Estate Weekly, Metropolis, Dwell, and the National Trust Preservation Magazine. David, a hearty welcome to Rediscovering New York.
1: Thanks. Great to be here.
0: For our listeners who may not have heard you in the past, uh, you're from the New York area but not from the city
1: originally. No, I, was, uh, I grew up uh, around the Port Jefferson area until I was about 12, and then our family moved up to the Hudson River Valley, but I've always worked in and around New York City. So,
0: And you had a very interesting history
1: uh, as a young adult, as a, a sort of a, a, a docent uh, in costume. Yes, when uh, we were children, uh, my siblings and I were the first children to be actually employed by New York State at the Old Bethpage Village Restoration out on Long Island, and we would dress up in costumes uh, that were replicas of clothing from the 1860s and play period games and with period toys. So that kind of helped... Uh, inculcate an interest for me in old buildings and older ways of sort of living. Uh, I was also a museum docent as a teenager at places like Stottsburg, which is the Mills Mansion historic site on the Hudson River Valley, and at Wilderstein, which was the Daisy Sookley home, Daisy Sookley being the personal secretary to FDR at one point.
0: What were games like for kids in the 1860s?
1: They were very simple, <laughs> and they didn't involve a lot of buttons. Nobody crushed any candy. Uh, it was a better time in some ways.
0: <laughs> were there army soldiers, too, in those days? Or, uh, uh, actually,
1: like what we played with were more things like hoops and outdoor games. Uh-huh. So instead of the, the types of games the children would have played with inside, we, when I was a little bit older, I started riding a velocipede, which is uh, one of the old bicycles that has a, a much larger front wheel than a back mm-hmm. wheel. So I would ride throughout the entire village restoration on that, and it was a... Uh, Uh, It was really quite quite fun.
0: Uh, We do have an episode, by the way, of the history of bicycles and cycling in New York. Bicycles have been here for 201 years. Mm. Um, I may have started out with velocipedes, I don't remember exactly. Um, Moving along to our topic of the evening, Flatiron Nomad and Madison Square Park. Since there is a very (laughs) famous park that connects between the two neighborhoods and has lots of history, let's start our conversation with Madison Square Park.
1: Yes. So Madison Square Park Uh, It's a a 6.2-acre park uh, bounded on the east, of course, by Madison Avenue, and on the south by 23rd Street, north by 26th, on the west by 5th, 5th Avenue and Broadway as they cross right where the Flatiron Building is now. Um, the park is probably best known worldwide for providing the name of Madison Square Garden, which is currently nowhere near the park. And we'll talk about Uh, the history
0: of the garden a little bit later on.
1: Exactly. So the area where the park was uh, had been a swampy hunting ground crossed by Cedar Creek, later renamed Madison Creek, and first came into use as a public space in 1686. It was a potter's field in the 1700s, as were many of... New York's early parks were initially cemeteries and that's why they had been kept cleared of development for that reason. Uh, in 1807, the parade, which was a tract of about 240 acres, uh, from 23rd to 34th Streets and 3rd to 7th Avenues, was set aside for use as a military field. Uh, there was a United States Army arsenal there from 1811 until 1825. Um, and then in 1839, the building was destroyed by fire. The size of the tract was reduced to 90 acres and it received its current name. So they continued to carve away a little bit of acreage from what is now the park.
0: But before Uh, the Civil War, there was also some correctional history based in what later would become the park.
1: uh, Yes. uh, There was the New York House of Refuge for the Society of the Protection of Juvenile Delinquents uh, for children under the age of 16 who were committed by the courts for indefinite periods. Mm. So that was uh, another use that the building had before its destruction by fire.
0: By the way, on a future episode of Rediscovering New York, we're going to be speaking about the history of law enforcement of the city as well as the history of corrections. Mm, I'm looking okay. for that. That will be really interesting show. Sure, that should be really good. Yeah. Um, in the 1830s, when the line of settlement was further downtown and the two main roads coming into town started coming into the outskirts of New York City, um, uh, someone set up an inn and tavern in what would become the neighborhood.
1: Yes, it was called Madison Cottage, and it was under the direction of William Corporal Thompson, uh, and he named Madison Cottage for the former president. Interestingly, uh, or ironically, the park and the avenue are named for Madison Cottage and not for the president himself. So, it's sort of a, there's an indirect tie because, of course, Madison Cottage was named for the president, but the park and the avenue were initially named after that famous uh, inn.
0: Do we know why he named uh, it after it, the fourth president, his um, cottage?
1: I mean, I imagine it was just a patriotic gesture of the time period. Mm-hmm. Um, Madison Cottage itself was raised in 1852, but as we said, it ultimately gave rise to the names for the adjacent avenue. So, therefore, uh, a lot of the things that are associated with James Madison are done so indirectly because if that house hadn't been named uh-huh. after him, it's possible Madison Avenue would have had a different name as well.
0: Unlike Madison Street on the Lower East Side, which yes, was specifically which named was for specifically
1: Madison. specifically named for him. Yeah.
0: So. The roots of America's favorite pastime are also in Madison Square.
1: Yes, the New York Knickerbocker Baseball Club, one of the very first professional baseball teams, uh, first gathered and practiced in Madison Square. Um, amateur players began in 1842 to use a vacant sand lot, which is at uh, 27th and Madison, for their games. And eventually, Alexander Cartwright suggested they draw up rules for the game and start a professional club. When they lost the sand lot to development, they moved across the Hudson River to Hoboken, New Jersey. Jersey, where they played their first game in 1846 so New Jersey took it away
0: from New York yeah, exactly early. Ah,
1: right well so, I suppose they were entitled to get one up on us at some point well they lost lost out to development as many people do unfortunately <laughs> Um, so on May tenth, eighteen forty-seven, the actual park was open to the public. Uh, within a few years, the tide of residential development, which was moving steadily uptown from around Washington Square area, had reached Madison Square.
0: What was the first residential development like in that part
1: of town? Well, uptown? interestingly, given the nature of the city and the location of Madison Square, the first houses were not particularly luxurious. They were row houses. Some of them were brownstone, but they were fairly small scale. Uh, there's only one such building that we know that kind of still exists from the, that first period of development, which is located at 14 East 23rd Street. So look at that. would give you some idea of what the proportions overall were. But despite this, through the 1870s, the neighborhood became much uh, more aristocratic. And much larger houses replaced that first wave of development. They were remodeled. They were sometimes... Um, Sort of combined into a single building, uh, there was an enormous mansion where uh, Jenny Jerome, who was Winston Churchill's mother, lived at one point. Uh, that was on the uh, the very side of Madison Square, and was that uh,
0: before she moved to Brooklyn? Because she also had lived in Brooklyn Heights at some point. I
1: think it was afterward okay. because the Jerome House was uh, is not as old as the one where she was living in Brooklyn Heights. Oh. Um, and there's a very interesting
0: bar called the Churchill on uh, Yes Twenty Eighth Street,
1: named for that link. Yeah. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, the Jerome House is famous for another reason. It is one of the very few registered New York City landmarks that was successfully contested and demolished. Uh, They were able to prove uh, that they were not able to sort of capitalize or commercialize on the property. It was too small to be an apartment house. It wasn't configured to be office space. There wasn't a museum or cultural organization that could take it on. And so the house was one of the relatively few, I think, that were listed as landmarks that was later removed. So it is no longer there.
0: Mm. Well, one of the country's most famous presidents is from that part of Manhattan.
1: Yes, uh, actually, many people lived in that area. Edith Wharton, we've already mentioned Jenny Jerome, and Theodore Roosevelt was born in the Madison Square area. Um, the house is there as a reconstruction. Uh, The original building was demolished in 1916 to make way for retail space, but when Roosevelt himself died in 1919, the lot was purchased and the house was rebuilt by the Women's Roosevelt Memorial Association, which eventually merged with the Roosevelt Memorial Association in 1953 to form the Theodore Roosevelt Association in Washington D.C. Very interestingly, the reconstruction is one of the relatively few buildings in the area designed by a woman architect, Theodate. Hope Riddle, who I think is one of the most interesting architects of her period. Uh, She designed uh, a number of buildings in Connecticut, including Hillstead Museum, a museum of impressionist art, which was her family residence. And she was very, very talented. And she did a very careful job with the uh, Theodore Roosevelt Association to make sure that the house replicated the original building as much as possible. Uh, she actually had Roosevelt relatives donate furniture, paintings, and other archive materials. And she was in continual correspondence with women of Roosevelt's household and family about what the place looked like exactly on the inside. So it's a, it's a, a fairly interesting kind of historical project of trying to recapture history in a way.
0: You know, I'm almost loath to uh, admit to this because I'm a native New Yorker and everyone knows, everyone who knows me knows how much I love history. I have never been in the Teddy Roosevelt House.
1: It's worth I a look. have got to lo- correct that. It's one of the very few sort of high-style 19th century interiors uh, to be open to the public in New York City. And the period rooms there, if you, if you realize that it is a reconstruction, it's a little bit like going to the Met and seeing some of the rooms that are in the American wing, but seeing them installed in a building that really replicates the dimensions of a brownstone overall, so.
0: Um, we're going to take a break in a minute and start talking about uh, some of the architecture uh, in the neighborhood and the two neighborhoods that we that we see today. But uh, I want to talk for a second about uh, one of the city's oldest monuments uh, on one side of Madison Square. And it also shares a special designation with just one other monument in the city.
1: Yes, that would be uh, General Worth Square, and the uh, Worth Monument itself, it was designed by James Goodwin Batterson, was erected in 1857 over the tomb of General Williams Jenkins Worth, who served in the Mexican War, and for whom Fort Worth, Texas was named, um, as opposed to just being you know a worthwhile fort, I guess. <laughs> this is a worthy place to put a fort, um, as well as Worth Street in Lower Manhattan, The City's Parks Department has designated the area around the monument as a parklet called General Worth Square. So although it is directly adjacent to Madison Square, it is not formally part of that park. Uh, The Worth Monument was one of the first to be erected in a city park since the statue of George III was removed from Bowling Green in 1776. So that's a long time to go without monuments. It's the city's second oldest intact monument. And it's the only one in the city except for Grant's tomb, which doubles as a mausoleum. And, of course, I can't mention Grant's tomb without mentioning the riddle about Grant's tomb. Who is buried (laughs) in Grant's tomb? Nobody. (laughs) They are interred in Grant's tomb.
0: Well, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with David Griffin about Nomad, Flatiron, and Madison Square Park. We'll be back in a minute.
2: You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern Time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc.
3: Are you a conscious co-creator?
2: Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours
4: a day.
0: We're back to Rediscovering New York.
5: You're
0: listening to... I love it. Two double entries in one (laughs) in the first first segment tonight. Uh, I like the theme music. Maybe we should think about changing it for our show. Um, David has been on the show before. Uh, David is the founder and CEO of Landmark Branding, and he's an architectural uh, aficionado and expert. Um, David is also uh, someone who does some very interesting stuff. He's recently completed a blog called Every Building on Fifth, which details every single building on Fifth Avenue from Washington Square all the way up to the river. Um, and David is also uh, about to publish an article tomorrow in Brownstoner. Do you want to tell us about that?
1: Yeah, so I'm very excited about it. It's going to be an article on 10 Montague Terrace, which is one of the largest intact Brownstone houses in Brooklyn. Uh, it's now studio apartments, but the interior details are remarkably intact throughout the whole house. Uh, so that's coming out this Wednesday on Brownstone or on the website. And then I'm also relaunching the blog. I did conclude it, as you said, with a The last um, uh, feature, I believe, is on the Harlem Armory. It's extraordinary,
0: by the way. I was looking through it tonight with our second guest. And it's, it's 120 pages, and the, and, yeah. and the detail yeah. and the descriptions are, are just wonderful to read.
1: It's literally 600 posts. Now, not all of those are buildings, because some of them are interviews with people, and some of them are observations about development. But yeah, there's about 575 buildings that line Fifth Avenue, so it really is a compendium of city history. And what I'm going to do is go back and start looking at buildings that have been renovated, restored, torn down, new additions. So there's a lot of material now to work with, and I'm very excited to get back to that as part of part going what I do for our landmark branding How
0: long did it take you to 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 complete that
1: day. It was about four years, actually. And some of it had to do with weather. Some of it had to do with being able to block off time to take the photography. I had to you know, walk the length of Fifth Avenue and make sure that I could get a halfway decent picture of each building. And then the research for some of these, some of them, obviously, the Empire State Building is very well known. And there are other buildings that are fascinating but seem sort of lost in terms of who the architects were, what the original uses were. So it was very interesting to kind of delve into them as much as I could without also i think going uh you know a little bit too far in terms of what the blog came to mean so mm. And do you want to talk for a <clears throat> couple of seconds about Landmark Branding and what your business yes, does? Yes. So I provide uh, branding and marketing support to brokers, developers, uh, architects, design firms, uh, and other real estate and design and, and uh, architecture professionals. I do everything from VIP tours to writing uh, bios, team bios, uh, writing branding uh, for companies, etc. and so forth. Uh, and coming up with things like creative blogs, creative access, uh, panels and things of that nature, and uh, very happy to be working with you, uh, Jeff, uh, on an upcoming uh, event uh, where I will be giving a talk on the history of the studio apartment. And last year
0: at a similar event you talked about, the history of the New York penthouse, which is uh, yes. from one extreme to the other, or, uh, well, not extreme from one end of the spectrum to the other. So many of us have dreamed about a New York penthouse, but so many of us have only been able Mm -hmm. to afford to live in New York studios at one point in our lives. Anyway, that brings us back to um, uh, buildings on uh, Fifth Avenue and Flatiron and Nomad. What was the Fifth Avenue Hotel?
1: Well, the Fifth Avenue Hotel is interesting because it was, in some sense, one of the very earliest luxury hotels in New York. Uh, it was built in 1856 to 59 by Amos Richards Eno at the cost of $2 million, which was exorbitant at that amount. And it was designed by an architect named Griffith Thomas, who worked with another one named William Washburn. Now, at the time of its construction, it was so far uptown from what were considered the centers of city life that it was dubbed Eno's folly, and New York bankers refused to lend him money for the project. Eno had to turn to people Uh, in Boston for funding. And interestingly, Boston is probably the location uh, Isaiah Rogers House. The Rogers House Hotel was the first true luxury hotel in the world. And this was very much modeled after the Boston building, uh, albeit some 30 years later. So what happened was the the building opened. It was very large. It had a very austere exterior, a very dignified, very plain. But the interior was very very lavishly decorated. And all of a sudden, people wanted to go just to see the lobbies, just to see the smoking rooms, just to see the bars and the restaurants. And it became very much a social center, and it helped kind of bring um, the aristocratic trade to Madison Square. It's this period where we begin to see the initial smaller row houses become acquired and combined or replaced by larger homes. In 1860, the Prince of Wales stayed at the Fifth Avenue Hotel, and an attendant for the Times of London, who was there to cover His Majesty's visit, said this building absolutely surpasses Buckingham Palace itself. He was so impressed by it. So this became a huge drive for commercial development in and around the square. Other hotels rose, particularly in the area that's now known as Nomad. And it really touched off a wave of luxury construction. Mm.
0: Let's turn to Madison Square Garden. Madison Square Garden is famously known. There have been four incarnations of it, but the first one actually was catty-corner across from Madison Square, which is where it got its name.
1: Yes, and it was originally designed as a train depot. At one point, the Harlem Railway went up 4th Avenue, and it stopped at that location. So there was a large brick building there. When (coughs) the railroad was pulled up, Uh, The building was converted into a hippodrome, and they had things like equestrian events there, theatrical uh, entertainments. And that was the building that was replaced by the famous Madison Square Garden by Stanford White of the firm McKim Mead and White. Who was Stanford White? Uh, He was one of the principal um, architects of that firm. And was a noted bon vivant and sort of gentleman around town, very much a socialite in addition to being a designer. Um, he had a very beautiful studio nearby, which actually came to back into sort of public record in 2007 when it collapsed <laughs> from rotting away. So uh, I guess um, no one had been looking after the place for a while, but it was on, um, I believe, East 24th Street. Um, <clears throat> So, the building that he designed for Madison Square Garden was modeled after an Italian palace. It had an incredible minaret-like tower that was modeled after the bell tower of the Cathedral of Seville in Spain. There were some uh, Moorish elements to the architecture, it was highly uh, eclectic. Uh, and it sat 8,000 people with a ballroom floor that could hold thousands more. It was one of the largest, what we would now call a nightclub actually, but it was one of the largest entertainment venues ever constructed in this country. Um, it had a rooftop garden, it had a cabaret, it had the largest restaurant in New York. Uh, it cost $3 million, so this is $1 million more than the Fifth Avenue Hotel. Again, this is 30 years later. And the opening of the new arena was attended by over 17,000 people, including J.P. Morgan, the Pierponts, the Whitney's, and General Sherman of Civil War. Wow. Wow. Infamy. So. Well, sadly for White, uh, his life also
0: ended in that building.
1: Yes, he carried on an affair with Evelyn Nesbit, a famous model and actress of the period. Wasn't she was the girl
0: on the red velvet swing?
1: She—that is—the mm-hmm. the movie actually does refer to that an episode in White's studio, the place that collapsed. There was a very beautiful room that had an, uh, a red velvet swing, and um, I think. Uh, It was sort of modeled after the Fragonard painting, in a way, uh, of the girl on the swing that people are probably more familiar with. Uh, So Evelyn Nesbitt married Henry Thaw, who was a wealthy um, industrialist from Pittsburgh. He became obsessed with Stanford White's previous uh, relationship with her and shot Stanford White to death in full public view at the rooftop garden of Madison Square. Uh, And that was pretty much the end of... All three of them. Mm. And also sort of precipitously, I think, was the event that triggered the demise of Madison Square Garden itself. The building never did turn a profit. And despite its incredible cultural and architectural significance, it was taken down in 1921-1922 and replaced by another architectural masterpiece, Cass Gilbert's New York Life Insurance Building, which is the large French Gothic skyscraper that dominates that block. Absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, at least, you know, if we lost a beautiful building, we gained another one of a different sort. So there is some compensation in that, I suppose. Let's talk briefly about Lady's Mile. Well, the Ladies' Mile is the district uh, that actually uh, encompasses both 5th and 6th Avenues and portions of Broadway from Union Square up to 23rd Street. So it's south of Madison Square proper. And it became a great department store location, Um, in part due to the development of things like the Fifth Avenue Hotel. It was thought that these streets were safer, particularly for women, and women felt more confident about going out with other women friends or by themselves to dine, to shop, to have coffee, to visit people. And the Ladies' Mile was a place where one could observe women really kind of owning the street culture in a way that wasn't considered ladylike or particularly safe uh, in many other places in the city, even places that were otherwise respectable. Um, the architecture of the Ladies Mile represented the very latest trends in solutions for high-rise buildings because these were places that could incorporate department stores and then the light industry of actually making or trimming goods and services, uh, things like cloaks, dresses, that type of thing. So there was, a, there was sort of an, almost an industrial element to some of these buildings. Mm-hmm. And uh, Robert Maynick, who is very little known these days, was actually a pioneer of what we now consider loft construction. The idea of a loft building comes from Maynick. And he designed many of the district's buildings, along with Louis Korn, John B. Snook, uh, Daniel H. Burnham, whose really magnificent iron building of 1902 soars over the intersection of Broadway and Fifth like the prow of an arriving ocean liner. Uh, the blocks on 6th and 5th are now a historic district. And particularly on Fifth Avenue, it's probably the best collection of that period's commercial architecture uh, in the entire city.
0: Ooh. What else is there architecturally significant about uh, uh, flat iron and nomad in terms of, of, of style?
1: Well, when you go north to Nomad, the the district changes somewhat because instead of the department stores that line 6th Avenue and the, the industrial buildings that line 5th, all of a sudden we have the luxury hotels that kind of picked up on the 5th Avenue Hotel. So the Ace Hotel is um, a survivor from that period, the Beaux Arts period. And the buildings south of 23rd Street are from, I would say, around 1880s through early 1900. And then north, they're basically 1900 through, I would say, the 1920s. So you see a lot more Art Deco. You see a lot more um, of the high skyscraper gothic mode. You see a lot more hotel architecture and a lot more to do with entertainment. This is where the theater district moved before it finally settled in Times Square. So there was always a kind of a nightlife sensibility to what we now call Nomad, that the, where the Ladies Mile was more about mercantilism and about uh, commercial ventures. Mm.
0: Uh, one other note of interest uh, in this segment is uh, about Nomad. Uh, Even though it's one of the older neighborhoods in Manhattan, uh, in its present configuration of a residential neighborhood, uh, most of its residential housing is relatively new. The building stock has actually been there a while, but as a residential neighborhood... Uh, the recent incarnation of Nomad is quite young, um, younger even than Roosevelt Island and even Battery Park City. It really is a newer residential neighborhood.
1: Yes, the, the major landmarks that sort of surround the park and then uh, are also north of it include things like the Appellate Court, which is one of the most lavish Beaux-Arts public buildings in America, uh, the original Metropolitan Life Tower, which is a spectacular clock tower built by Napoleon Le and Sons in 1908-1910 and was considered a benchmark for the rapid construction of steel-framed buildings. They actually published photographs of it in Europe, and people were absolutely amazed that something that tall could be built that quickly. And then one of my favorites, which is a little bit of a sleeper, 11 Madison Avenue, uh, now the location of numerous very famous restaurants, but actually a really masterful Art Deco building that was designed as the base for an 89-story structure that would have been taller than the Empire State if it had been completed. It was the Great Depression that kind of put paid to that.
0: Mm-hmm. And they stopped that when, uh, right after uh, the stock market
1: crash. Yes.
0: Well... Uh, quite a history in Nomad and Flatiron. Uh, our first guest has been David Griffin, who's the founder and CEO of Landmark Branding. David, how can people get in touch with you to find out more about Landmark?
1: My uh, website is www.landmarkbranding.com, and I can be reached at dgriffin, G R I F F I N, at landmarkbranding.com. The blog is also linked on the website as every building on Fifth. And I'm going to be linking numerous articles, podcasts, and other things that I've been recently working on with clients to that website uh, in the next couple of weeks.
0: Oh, great. Well, thanks so much for being on the show yet again. Thanks for having me. uh, We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to have our second guest who actually lives in Nomad and has been involved in some local efforts of historic preservation. We'll be back in a moment.
5: You're listening to The Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day.
6: Talking Alternative Radio,
2: 24 hours a day.
0: We're back. Support for Rediscovering New York comes from our sponsors. The Mark Myman team, mortgage strategists at Freedom Mortgage. For assistance in any kind of residential mortgage, Mark and his team can be reached at 646-330-4735. And support also comes from the law offices of Thomas Siaka, specializing in wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212-495-0317. Our show is about New York, especially its neighborhoods, and the myriad textures of our amazing city. There's another great show on the air about New York, and specifically about the business of real estate, Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco, my friend and colleague at Halstead. Vince's show airs live on Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m., on voiceamerica.com, and also on podcast. You can like the show on Facebook, Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman. And you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handle in those uh, channels is Jeff Goodman NYC. If you have comments or questions, or if you'd like to get on our show's mailing list, please email me, Jeff at RediscoveringNewYork.NYC. One other note before we get to our second guest. Even though Rediscovering New York is not a show about the real estate business in New York, when I'm not on the air, I am indeed a real estate agent in our amazing city, where I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you or someone you care about is considering a move into, out of, or within New York, I would love to help you with all those real estate needs. You can reach me and my team at 646-306-4761. Our second guest is a special guest, uh, someone who lives in no Man and someone I've known actually through historic preservation and development, George Calderaro. George is Director of Community Relations at Columbia University School of Professional Studies. Formerly, he served as communications director at the New School, the New York City Landmarks Preservation Commission, the Studio Museum in Harlem, and the Berker Museum of Art at SUNY Purchase. An active preservationist, he's a board member of the Historic District, Historic District Council, where we met, the 29th Street Neighborhood Association, the Victorian Society of New York, the Friends of the Upper East Side Historic Districts, and No Longer Empty, as well as a committee member of... Landmark Fifty of the Landmark 50 Alliance, excuse me, the City Club of New York and the New York City Board of Education, Career and Technical Education, Business and Finance Advisory Board. What a resume. He is, I didn't know you did all this stuff, George. He's a former member of Manhattan Community Board 1, a co-chair of its Battery Park City Committee and a member of its Landmark Committee, and a founding member of Save Gansevoort Market Committee and Visual AIDS Night Without Light Committee. Wow, wow. George Calderero, welcome to Rediscovering New York.
4: It's a pleasure to be here. Are you from New York originally? Um, technically, I am. I was born in Brooklyn, but my family moved to Connecticut in, uh, when I was six months old. Wow, where in Brooklyn did you have your uh, first months? Uh, in uh, uh, Bay, I was born in Bay Ridge Hospital.
0: Oh, okay, okay. Um, which is no longer
4: there. No longer there. <laughs>
0: Um, Let's talk about your professional history. How long have you been at Columbia University for? And what Uh, is the School of of Professional Studies?
4: I've been at Columbia for 14 years, and the School of Professional Studies is formerly the School of Continuing Education. But about five years ago, uh, our dean, uh, among others, noted that uh, continuing education uh, connotes non-credit courses for personal enrichment, which is exactly what the School of Continuing Education at Columbia does not do. We focus on professional education, specifically uh, 17 graduate programs and various other programs focused on careers and professional education. Mm
0: When were you at the Studio Museum in Harlem, and what did you do when you were Um,
4: there? Studio Museum in Harlem was one of my uh, jobs in communications. Uh, in nonprofit organizations, which has been my entire career. Uh, I came to New York originally as a uh, for a summer job working in communications in arts administration, specifically in theaters at the Manhattan Theater Club. And uh, when that summer job was done, I decided to stay for almost forty years and worked in uh, various positions in nonprofit organizations in communications, including the Studio Museum in Harlem, where I was. Uh, uh, Director of Communications from 1989 to
0: 1993. What brought you to the Landmarks Preservation Commission? How did you find
4: that? I was always intrigued with architecture and with preservation, and at that point, I had been working in museums for about ten years, and thought that this was a chance to make a, a, a chance to make a change and uh, uh, work again in community relations and communications in an area that I was passionate about or growingly, increasingly passionate about. How long were you with the commission for? I wasn't there very long because, as you know, the New York City Landmarks Com- Preservation Commission is a uh, a city agency. Therefore, it's a political uh, agency. So I came in during the Dinkins administration and left in the Giuliani administration. So I was only there for a, a matter of two or, two or three years. But because the commission is such, plays such a central role in preservation in all five boroughs in a short period of time, Time I was able to have incredible exposure to the many brilliant preservationists and neighborhoods and communities, many of which you probably know, in fact, have probably interviewed uh, in, in this program.
0: Well, just by the the uh, length of the of the organizations that you've been involved with, you've been involved in an amazing amount of of stuff having to do with preserving our culture in New York and specifically our architecture and historic preservation. Um, when did you become involved with the Historic Districts Council?
4: Right after I left uh, the commission, uh, Franny Eberhardt, who was the first paid staff member of the Historic Districts Council, which is celebrating its 50th anniversary uh, this year, uh, said to me, oh good, you're no longer on staff at the commission. You can come and be a board member at HDC. And that was 30 some odd years ago. I, I, I'm currently on the advisory board um, uh, of that organization. Um, and and I I have been a board member. You know there are term limits, and you go on and off the board. But right now, I'm on the advisory board,
0: which is a good thing. I've been off some organizations' boards because of term limits, and then gotten back on again. It is it is a healthy thing for for a nonprofit. Um, some people might uh, conflate uh, the Historic Districts Council with something like the New York City Landmarks Preservation Commission. What does HDC do exactly?
4: HDC uh, is the citywide advocate for New York's historic neighborhoods. They advocate for the preservation and integrity of over a hundred uh, it's probably something like 125 historic districts in New York City right now, but they also get involved with uh, related issues including designation and protection of uh, individual landmarks and communities and bringing attention to uh, worthwhile um, sites around in the five boroughs. I do want to ask you about efforts to
0: landmark a building in Nomad, but first I want to ask you about the 29th Street Neighborhood mm-hmm. Association. What is that? Uh, the 29th
4: known? Street Neighborhood Association is a group that I became aware of after I moved to uh, the neighborhood, the Nomad, uh, uh, Curry Hill, Rose Hill, uh, Kipps Bay, whatever neighbor name you want to give to this area of Midtown. On this Sound. program, you're a Nomad. I'm <laughs> in this program I'm a nomad. Okay, I'll take it. Uh, Um, and uh, so but Carrie Hill too being a preservationist uh, uh, I I, I saw that uh, the most active civic group involved with preservation in Nomad uh, was the 29th Street Neighborhood Association which um, uh, occupies itself with quality of life issues Uh, the one that I was most interested in was uh, 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 was uh, preservation and uh, in fact the association Association in since 2008 had submitted proposals to the Landmarks Commission to expand the Madison Square North Historic District to include a, a much larger area. The uh, Madison Square North ends at about 27th Street right now, and there was an extensive proposal to expand it north, south, east, and west to to incorporate the incredible um, uh, building stock which uh, your previous guest was alluding to. I mean, it was a period when uh, at the, the turn of the uh, 20th century, when the city had uh, enormous wealth and also um, a very extravagant aesthetic style, aesthetic being uh, an architectural style, not the aesthetic movement. It mm-hmm. was Beaux-Arts, as he was saying. It was everything. And it was also an area where, which was the center of New York at this crucial period. So the buildings that were going up, and many of which still remain, they're beautiful um, structures, are, 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 just gorgeous. Are, are incredible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I became passionate about that. And um, I'll just make a a quick segue. The area that most intrigued me um, was Tin Pan Alley, which um, like many people, I had heard the expression Tin Pan Alley, didn't quite know where it was, didn't quite know what it was and quickly discovered that uh, it was the um, uh, the birthplace of American popular song. It was it was where uh, American popular music was created. At, in the late nineteenth and into the early twentieth century, on Twenty Eighth Street. Yes, it's Twenty yes. Eighth. Uh, Twenty Eighth Street was the nexus. The first uh, song uh, sheet music publisher, uh, M. Whitmark and Sons, moved there in eighteen ninety-five to forty-nine fifty-one uh, uh, West Twenty eighth street and and scores of sheet music publishers followed on twenty eighth street and in the area because, as was pointed out by your previous guest, this was the entertainment center of New York City in the late nineteenth and early. 20th century so the whole area was uh, was uh, providing music to singers and theaters and vaudeville performers and uh, hotels and the entire uh, 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 creative community in uh, in the Tin Pan Alley area and then also in the somewhat sketchier Tenderloin area which is in what is now Chelsea hmm. Well, Tin Pan
0: Alley uh, is in Nomad. Uh, you are project head for Save Tin Pan Alley. Mm-hmm. And that's what you've been you doing. And, to, and it, it was recently landmark, wasn't it? There were a number. Yes,
4: I'm really delighted yes. to. Congratulations, uh, by the way. I saw that email
0: a couple of weeks ago. That was wonderful. <laughs>
4: Thank you. Yeah, after uh, I've been working on the project for five and a half years, and other individuals and groups, including the Historic Districts Council, had been advocating for decades to uh, create a historic district or somehow commemorate the cultural significance. Mm-hmm. Of of, of Tin Pan Alley, again, where American popular music was born. And on December 10th, 2019, the Landmarks Commission designated five individual landmarks, uh, numbers 49 to 55, West 28th Street, as individual landmarks, a.k.a. Tin Pan Alley. So uh, we have we have accomplished that, and actually already formed a committee uh, called the the Tin Pan Alley American Popular Music Project to envision the next generation to commemorate uh, the 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 legacy and the the import of what's happening there. And uh, and uh, what we're envisioning uh, is something like, or perhaps exactly like, the Grammy a, a branch of the Grammy Museum on uh, 28th Street or another. Uh, 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 experience, uh, museum experience, or and or performance spaces, speakeasies, schools, etc., uh, that uh, will reflect and uh, commemorate this the significant mm-hmm. era. Well, I like the speakeasy part.
0: Uh, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with George Calderero who among his many uh, involvements is a board member of the 29th Street Neighborhood Association, the project head of Save Tin Pan Alley, and also a resident of Nomad slash Curry Hill. We'll be back in a moment.
6: Talking
4: Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. TalkingAlternative.com Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day.
0: back to our special guest, George Calderero of the 29th Street Neighborhood Association and also the project head of Save Tin Pan Alley. Uh, George, tell us, uh, tell our uh, listeners about some of the organization's contact information in case they want to find out more information. Sure. Right.
4: Um, the 29th Street Neighborhood Association uh, website, I think our URL is just 29th Street Neighborhood Association, but it should be easy to find, dot uh, org, and Save Tin Pan Alley. Dot org, uh, have uh, are 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 being updated uh, as we speak. We're still waiting for final uh, sign-off on the landmark designation from the city council. So when you go to the site, you'll still be able to sign a petition, and we'll have your information. But uh, uh, we'll we'll be updating the site with the, uh, the Tin Pan Alley project information ASAP.
0: By the way, I love I love the design of the Save Tin Pan Alley website. It's really cool. Thank uh, you. The 29th Neighborhood Association is fine too, but Tin Pan Alley is really. Uh, 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 brings out the color of the place.
4: And there's great video and a lot of articles. There's tons of information there on Tin Pan Alley. Which brings us to uh, attempts to, to landmark another building in
0: the neighborhood, the Demarest Building. It's on Fifth Avenue, right across from the Empire State Building. Do you want to talk a little bit about the historical significance and about your efforts to preserve? Sure. The, the, the
4: Demarest Building is, is actually uh, was was uh, one of the poster child buildings for the uh, uh, expansion of the Madison Square North uh, Historic District uh, effort that I mentioned. We had been working on since two thousand. Eight and it's just a stunning building by designed by James uh, Renwick, the architect of St. Patrick's Cathedral, Grace Church, uh, the Renwick Building at the Smithsonian. Um, it's a, it's a stunning the building. smallpox
0: hospital on Roosevelt Island. <laughs> Thank you, and among many oh, yeah, others. Yeah. He's one
4: of the most prominent nineteenth-century uh, architects in New York or in America or. Anywhere, It's it's been compared to Christopher Gray, uh, the late uh, author in the Streetscapes column in the New York Times, referred to it as a mini Carnegie Hall. It's got these magnificent uh, arched windows and and, and, uh, Roman brick and an incredible cornice, and it is threatened. uh, After uh, us featuring this as our our, our poster child about the architectural significance of the neighborhood, we got word um, in late 2019 that... um, The uh, uh, the owners were uh, are seeking to build demolish it and build a 26 story hotel, which is the last thing that this neighborhood needs or wants. So we uh, quickly with support of village preservation, even though it's not in the village. Preservation is citywide, from village preservation to Carnegie Hill neighbors, to the Friends of the Upper East Side, the Historic Districts Council, Landmark West are all rallying around this building and the commission to get them to designate uh, this building as an individual landmark, which should have have happened uh, years ago. Uh, so we are working on that on December eighteenth we had a rally with elected officials, including the borough president and city council person uh, Keith Powers, Senator Brad Hoyleman, uh, Assemblyman dick Godfried, and, uh, and and made an, an, a heated Appeal for the um, for saving the building. In fact, tomorrow uh, in uh, we're here in January 2020 now. Uh, these elected officials are meeting with the Landmarks Commission to appeal directly to save this building. What comes of that? I don't know. I, I'm not aware of the political machinations uh, behind landmark designation. But we will keep fighting for this. Well, thank you for your fine work in that area. Um, We have to spend a little bit of
0: time talking about the neighborhood that you live in and the neighborhood that you're committed to to historically preserving. When did you move to 28th Street?
4: Uh five and a half years ago. So that's East 28th Street, everyone. East 28th yes. Street. Yeah, not near Tin Pan Alley. I always have to clarify that. that That's not my personal uh, hobby horse. You have to tap dance down a couple of blocks to get to Tin Pan Alley. <laughs> yeah. um, describe the vibe of the neighborhood, George. What do you like about it? Well, I noted that some people call it Curry Hill because it's actually known for the preponderance of Indian and Bangladeshi restaurants there on Lexington Avenue and a little bit on Third Avenue. So it's kind of Funky. Uh, uh, some people say gritty, uh, and uh, but it's quite. Uh, not schizophrenic, but it's quite uh, uh, diverse. So, for example, um, a uh, 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 a few blocks south mm-hmm. is Madison Square Park, which you've talked about, which is just magnificent. It's an incredible Victorian-era uh, park. Oh, we left off that I'm a board member of the Victorian Society. Oh, you, you noted that. Yes, as. of course. Uh, of course. And I note all. So you've got like Madison Santa. Square Park. But then at the same time, uh, you've got uh, a lot of, uh, uh, you know, new skyscrapers going up uh, Christian and Park did uh, a, a glass shard building at 28th and Park you've got uh, uh, renovated buildings like the freehand hotel which is very hot and hip uh, it's got lots of restaurants and a rooftop bar and uh, across the street uh, Norman Foster designed a building on 23rd street uh uh Fotografiska, the Swedish uh, Photography Museum, just opened a matter of weeks ago on Park Avenue and 22nd Street. So there's a lot of action. uh, Whole Foods just announced its opening on 28th Street between uh, Madison and Park. Um, So you've got real movement, real transition, real vitality. Uh, All of my friends who go to restaurants say I live in the best neighborhood in New York. Uh, And that's not just in the immediate area of uh, Curry Hill, but also Nomad. And um, and as was previously mentioned by David, you also have the great uh, reused hotels like the Nomad Mm. and the Ace Hotel.
0: And the neighborhood, Nomad, really has been changing a lot over the past five years.
4: Um, is there anything that surprises you about Nomad, especially as someone who lives there? Um, I guess I shouldn't be surprised by the pace of development. But on my block, for example, on 20, East 28th Street, um, uh, buildings are going up on both corners. Um, so and they're not super-talls. There are a lot of super-talls that are going up around Fifth Ave, between Fifth Avenue and Lexington, but they're 20-something story-tall buildings which... Hopefully, or will be innocuous um, in that uh, they 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 won't be architectural nightmares. But I have to, as a preservationist, I, I, I often say, uh, everything can't be preserved, and the buildings that they are replacing are not significant. They're 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 low scale, poorly maintained um, uh, row houses. And that's actually a very good attitude to take. Sometimes
0: people think everything should be preserved, but you have to have a balance. Between preserving our most important landmarks, but also uh, uh, having sites and buildings be able to be used for current
4: uh, for current growth, especially if visitors. there are, 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 are there are good architects working in the neighborhood. And uh, w- however one feels about the density uh, and the taxing of the infrastructure, we are having some uh, some well known architects working in the neighborhood.
0: Uh, one last question: We're almost at a time. Is there anything you struggle with in Nomad?
4: Um, I think the things that people struggle with in any corner of the city. You've got um, uh, homelessness that we're trying to work with. We work at the 29th Street Association. We work closely with uh, Midtown South Precinct and, uh, and our, our local uh, police precinct. We've got that. We've got um, a lot of uh, street congestion um, because 28th Street in particular has three or four subway lines, and you've got all the hospitals at the and uh, the eastern end of 28th Street. So you've got tons of, of traffic, not only going to the hospitals, including Bellevue, but you also have the 30th Street um, uh, men's homeless shelter. Um, so one success we had just last week was we had got an expansion of the sidewalk at 28th and Park to accommodate this taxing of our infrastructure. Oh. Well,
0: thank you, George. Our second guest on this program about No Man Flatiron and Madison Square has been George Calderero. He's an extensive resume. The most significant uh, uh, affiliations are on the advisory board of the Historic Districts Council, of which I'm a member, by the way, full disclosure. Uh, George is on the board of the 29th Street Neighborhood Association and also Save Tin Pan Alley. If you have comments or questions about the show, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at York.nyc. You can like us on Facebook and also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategists at Freedom Mortgage, and the law offices of Tom Siaka. One more thing before we sign off. I am Jeff Goodman, a real estate agent at Halstead in New York City, and whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I are dedicated to our clients and come to our work with passion, and we also bring to our clients the best expertise in New York City real estate. You can reach us at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our engineer is Sam Leibowitz. Our special consultant is David Griffin of Landmark Branding, who was a guest on our show tonight. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.
2: Radio twenty four hours a day. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. I'm
6: the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio,
5: Hey, all you crazy listeners, looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info at Alternative.
3: Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness?
0: Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc.
2: You're listening to The Talking Alternative Network.